Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, back once again with one of these remotely recorded Truth and Movies specials. This week, a transatlantic remote recording as well. We're getting to the end of the year, so of course our moods are turning reflective. And it's when people do crazy things like rank and pick their favourites uh, of the films they've seen over the course of the year. We're going to have a pair of episodes looking back at some of the films that we've loved from the year in anticipation of the big best of 2020 list that's coming to lwlies.com. I hear from the 21st of December. Keep your eye out for that. But today I'm joined by two Little White Lies contributors to talk about their favourites from the year. Hannah Woodhead. Hey. And Charles Bromesco. Hello. Charles, it's been a while. Last time we spoke, uh, we were talking about the rise of the Netflix. You, of course, are oh my in... God. You're in New York right now, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, I think it was just about at the beginning of quarantine when you and I uh, spoke about that, right? Mm. Or maybe... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and let me tell you, Netflix has had a banner year. Uh, <laughs> everything I said then about uh, their precipitous growth and, and their policy and the sorts of movies that they choose to acquire has only been truer, proven truer over the past year. What a year. And how's your year been? Has it been a year for you, Charles? Um, I think, you know, in as much as uh, one could be while you're stuck indoors all the time, I've been very diligent about quarantining here in New York, but I have had the chance to spend it with uh, people I enjoy, my loved ones and friends uh, here in my apartment who uh, I'm cohabitating with. And so their company has been really, really major during this time. And I have had the chance to watch a lot of movies that I had never seen before. And so this has felt like a very uh, productive time in a sense, uh, even if it's been a very sedentary time. A lot of Mm -hmm. cooking too. I kind of learned to cook. Terrific. Who needs movies when you can cook? <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. And I mean, we're, re- we're uniting New York and Yorkshire with this episode. Hannah, you're still up there, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Finally, the, the uh, most ambitious crossover event of the decade. Um, no, this is I, our I, Avengers. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm still living in my mum's um, living room. Uh, we put our Christmas tree up. The cat has attempted to climb it every single night since. Um... So yeah, you know that's that's my kind of life at the moment. Um, I and I mean I I do feel like Charles. I feel quite lucky that this second lockdown I've been with my family. It's been really nice compared to my first lockdown where I was um, in my house in London with my housemates. But I did feel very kind of isolated. So this has been 
a much uh, a much nicer experience. Lots of arguing over um, TV and cinema and pop culture. With Good my things family. to argue about. Yeah. Yeah, we had a nice and uh, passionate debate about Johnny Depp yesterday. So you know. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know that, that you came down as ardently pro. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, knowing love, you, love, love uh, uh, Johnny Depp. Can't so, get enough of JD. For any for any listeners, it's a fascinating article, I believe, in the Hollywood Reporter um, from this week yeah. about um, the rise and fall of Johnny Depp. I would highly recommend reading that if you're interested in a very matter of fact um, kind of statement of how his career kind of uh, took a fall. But anyway, that's not what the podcast is about. Uh, so yeah, I, I uh, I'm happy to be here talking about some good movies. I don't think Johnny Depp was in any of our picks of the year. So no, I don't think his <laughs> name will pop up again. He was in the Ciro Guerra movie that I did not see. He was in Waiting for the Barbarians out of Venice Film Fest, which seemed at one point interesting to me. And then as, as the days ticked by, I just felt less and less compelled to see this movie. Although the book on which it's based is excellent. Yeah, Robert Pattinson's uh, second role of the year, third role of the year. Our he, He's been in a lot of movies this year as well. Not not very good ones. The man works. <laughs> I suppose we should dive into the films we did enjoy and see. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. no time like the present. So we're going to go round the three of us. We've each come with two picks of our favourites of the year. Who should we start with? Charles, I'll start with you. Oh, that's uh, very polite of you. <laughs> uh, so the first one that I wanted to talk about, which is really I, I have settled on as my number one movie of the year, uh, is Matthew Rankin's The 20th Century. This is a Canadian production that heavily fictionalizes the early years of PM Prime Minister uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King, who served through World War II, sort of shepherded uh, Canada through the conflict and is looked at as a great statesman, but this film takes a very uh, subversive, comical, blackly comical look at him and imagines him as this sort of sniveling twerp with a boot-sniffing fetish and a giant hidden cactus in his bedroom that ejaculates whenever he gets sexually aroused. It's uh, a pretty out-there movie uh, in a way that I find very endearing. Uh, there are, I think, a lot of films that aspire to that sort of uh, all-out strangeness but can't don't have the earnestness or mastery of craft to really get there, which I think this uh, director, this is his first feature, Matthew Rankin, uh, really nails that. He is a guy of tremendous vision. We see all of these incredible uh, landscapes achieved through forced perspective and glass mats that sort of look uh, like live action animation. It's uh, it's pretty incredible stuff to see in all of this uh, crazy work with animatronics and with uh, shadow cut puppets like Lottie Reiniger used in The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. It's uh, it's so so cool, and it's hysterically funny. This is a there's an amazing scene where the competition to become prime minister is seen as a series of trials of Canadian manhood, which include urinating in snowbanks, painting your name with with your own pee in snowbanks, clubbing baby seals, uh, allowing people to cut you in line. You know, Canadian stuff. Wow. Okay. So th this is quite for us anyway, from a UK perspective, quite a deep cut. I'd wonder has it even got any sort of a international release plan i do I, I feel bad if i'm dangling this in front of the good people of the uk but uh i believe it's online in a in a wider capacity i know that so it got a virtual cinema release here in the states and i don't know about the geolocking situation i think that mm -hmm. a lot of people can access those for the time being but um <laughs> it's a property of oscilloscope who my hope right. is will make it available 
uh, in, in America, it's property of Oscilloscope. It's Canadian production. But I hope, yeah, I hope it becomes widely available for listeners in the U.S. It is available now. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a little off the beaten path. I saw it for the first time at Toronto International Film Fest last year, actually, in 2019, where I, I was in tears laughing. And I right. spent all year waiting for it to come out, and I'm trying to beat the drum for this one. This is one of those movies where you sort of take it up as your own cause celeb and try to get the word out. Yeah, well, that's the 20th century. Yeah, it, it is. This year has really pulled the rug out from underneath so much of what we presume to be the the, the whole festivals versus theatrical window yeah. versus everything. The, the, the whole way of getting to see movies has changed so much in the last 12 months that we need to bang the drum for some of those deeper cuts once they do come out because we can't just rely on the big platforms to push stuff in our faces. It's, it's dispiriting. I've been talking to people, you know, now the year is over and they're like, uh, most people are under the impression that movies just did not come out at all this year, which, well, you know, I'm just like, they weren't in theaters, but there's still uh, a lot of good stuff. I ended up with like, I think a list of 40 movies I liked that came out this year uh, in, the, in the US that is. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, it, a lot of stuff just sort of went under the radar unless it was on Netflix and, you know, right there in your living room waiting for you. And even then, a lot of their stuff kind of goes unnoticed. Yeah, exactly. You've brought up Netflix already, Charles. <laughs> that's, that's your commission. It took, took about 10 minutes, yeah. That was it. Um, Hannah, what's your first pick? Um, my first pick is... I'm just trying to decide which order to put them in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Baby Teeth, which is a film by uh, Shannon Murphy, uh, an Australian uh, filmmaker slash playwright, I think. And uh, this is her... I want to say it's her debut. I might be wrong. Shall I? It is? Yeah, you're nodding? Okay, I'm going to say that with a little bit more confidence. Uh, this is her debut feature, and I saw it at London Film Festival last year, so it would have been October last year, and I uh, sobbed my way through it. I uh, was not kind of expecting to be as emotionally affected as I was. Um, for those who haven't heard of it, it's a story about a 16-year-old girl um who has terminal cancer and she meets a boy as one does and kind of falls madly in love with him and it's a very kind of simple story in a lot of ways it's just girl meets boy girl falls madly in love um and it kind of navigates this doomed romance i guess but with such care and humor and effervescence that i was really really surprised by how much i loved it and you know, this story is one, I think, that has been told kind of for decades now, ever since Love Story came out. It's, you know, it's a very um, well-worn path. And I think particularly in the teen movie genre, there's been a lot of the uh, kind of a walk to remember, uh, the fault in our stars, uh, five feet apart. There's like a whole, it's like a, a genre of its own, the, you know, the doomed, terminally ill teens in love. I, well, I think we had an. I think that Charles was it you that coined the like um, sexy teens dying or something like <laughs> name for it. Like. I, I there there has to be some sort of compact term for all this. There was the Lily Reinhardt one that came out this past summer. Uh, Chemical, Chemical Hearts. Hearts. What a title! <laughs> See, like even this year, there's been there's been more. Um, so I guess I was I was quite skeptical, um, but. Maybe maybe it's something to do with it being Australian and not from the kind of Hollywood machine. Um, I don't know. It just feels like a very fresh take on what I think could have been a kind of horribly overwrought 
sentimental, um, emotionally manipulative story. And it manages to really like kind of skillfully sidestep all that. It's got this wonderful cast led by Eliza Scanlon, who is one of those actresses who I, I'm always kind of excited when she turns up in things, but I think she's been very underutilized. So she was in Little Women, um, where she also played a teenager who died. And she was in uh, The Devil All the Time earlier this year, where she also played a teenager who died. So, <laughs> you know, she she's, uh, she's really like got this little niche down, but this is the first film I feel that has really kind of given her um, a meaty role and something to kind of do. And it also stars uh, the wonderful Ben Mendelsohn, who I always, uh, you know, someone says he's in a film and I'm instantly on board. I think he can do no wrong. I think he's such a charismatic and uh, wonderful actor. But again, like, I feel like in this, in Baby Teeth, he's doing something quite different for him. He's really like, he plays this, he plays um, Myla's father. and He's very much kind of, I, I hesitate to say downtrodden, but he's a very sort of like softy spoken uh, psychiatrist with an awful uh, moustache situation. And he is uh, opposite Essie Davis, who plays his wife. And again, it's just, she's absolutely wonderful. It really felt like this kind of um, perfect translation of a play to screen uh, that doesn't happen very often. I think often when plays are adapted into movies, it can feel very stagey and you're very aware that it's just a series of conversations taking place. But this manages, I think, to be quite effortless in the way it moves. And uh, I was, yeah, I was kind of blown away by it. I thought it was a really incredible debut and I'm, I'm so excited to see what Shannon uh, does next as a filmmaker. Baby Teeth was one that completely... Uh, passed me by i missed this at the festivals last year and actually is a very uniquely sort of 2020 movie it did get a cinema release in the uk but it happened sort of in that l that period where cinema started to reopen but people maybe hadn't rushed back yet so actually it's perfectly timed it's the, the blu-ray of it's just landed through my door as we record so i'm finally catching up with this film that people have been talking about for 12 months now it feels like so i'm looking forward to digging into that i think my first pick feeds into that in a similar way, actually. It's a film that had a very limited um, cinema release at the other end of the cinema's opening and then closing again. It's Wolf Walkers, the new film from Cartoon Saloon. Um, if I could do a quick sidebar on animation of the year, it's been a really good year for animation, particularly off the beaten track. Not your Disney's and your Pixar's, but I saw a great anime film at Rotterdam at the beginning of the year it feels like a million years ago but <laughs> Children of the Sea which is now available here of course World of Tomorrow Part 3 the new Don Hertzfeldt you know the way that he makes these shorts that cram in bigger sci-fi ideas that even the most thick Isaac Asimov type sci-fi novel can you know dream of um, and also a film called Away, that's a, an, another film that was in cinemas earlier in the year, but happened during a time where uh, maybe people weren't rushing back to the to the cinemas and didn't go out on streaming, so were waiting for a home end release. That film called Away, which is by a Latvian filmmaker called Gintz Zilbalodis, um, who it's, it's it's pretty much a one man production, animated almost entirely himself, and the sort of thing that uh, I think would appeal to people who are like video game fans. This single lone character going through a landscape having an adventure but back to wolf walkers i've been such a fan of cartoon saloons films since they started about a decade ago with 
uh, The Secrets of Kells, and they made Song of the Sea, The Breadwinner. So these films that sort of growing in stature and acclaim as they go. Wolf Walkers really feels like a breakout moment for them. Uh, they are returning in some ways to themes from The Secrets of Kells. It's very much rich in Irish folklore and history. Uh, what's different from The Secret of Kells is that this is set in a specific period of time where Oliver Cromwell is quelling Irish spirits, which in this uh, film is being represented by a wild forest that grows outside of a buttoned-down, walled-up city, a grey you know, concrete city. And the wolf walkers are the the Irish folk who can walk between the land of the wolves and the land of humans. And it's quite a bewitching folkloric adventure story of one girl from one camp and a girl from another forming a, a, a friendship that transcends the prejudices between the two. It's a you know tale as old as time sort of thing. But the animation style feels like such a level up from Cartoon Saloon who have always had a very... Um, hybrid kind of vision for animation part of its woodblock prints very european in style in some ways very anime influenced also influenced by lots of classic disney in this one they're really experimenting with the form particularly with character designs the way that the townies are much more sort of geometric in their shape and then once you venture out into the woods it's almost like the ghibli film the tale of the princess kaguya where the free-flowing lines of the animators rough sketches show the verve that can happen when you break out of those boundaries it's a really beautiful film i only saw it on a screen or on my tv screen and i'd love to see it big um it's a really fabulous film and also has I think one of two great Sean Bean performances we've had this year. He plays the dad of the townie character who's brought over from England to be uh, the Lord Protector's personal wolf hunter. Um, he's great in this and uh, is also great in Possessor, the Brandon Cronenberg film. <laughs> That's a, that, that one is a, a vintage performance from Sean Bean, I think. Uh, I'm excited to see Wolfwalkers now. I know. Well, I was excited before because I'd heard it's beautiful beautiful film but now i'm even more excited i love a good as a sheffield girl i love a good sean bean performance of all the movies in which sean bean dies in some sort of hideous grisly way possessor has to be like top two minimum <laughs> you, you, you know it's coming but you couldn't possibly know in what what form it's coming. exactly <laughs> exactly I, I saw it at, um i saw possessor at um sundance and i was sitting in the front row um, with some friends of mine and it was about like lunchtime and I think we'd all just we, I think we'd all just had lunch and I I don't think I've ever had quite such a visceral reaction to violence on screen normally I'm totally fine with it but something about that just really like I, I fully recoiled and did a ew which must have been like very annoying to everyone else in the cinema but it, it, it was you know I, it was, I, I'm, uh, I'm it was the altitude I'm glad he's got the uh, duality this year of like this really quite horrific horror film and then this like kind of sounds quite lovely uh, animated film about Ireland. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see this now. And the great thing about Wolfwalkers is as we speak, um, it's out on Apple TV+, Plus, which is sort of one of the also-ran streaming platforms of the year, but is very 2020 in the sense that you are getting movies, which you would go to the cinema to pay proper ticket prices to go and see, beaming into your living room. It's just a case of now being able to keep track of what's being released on where and then keeping a 
keeping a handle on how many subscriptions you have going on at once. <laughs> this is my complaint. It's it's. I don't really have any issue with streaming in principle. It's the fact I can't afford to have five different streaming services. You know, whereas I used to be able to go to the cinema with um, a membership or like a movie plus ticket for, you know, relatively cheap. Um, it does feel like now if you want to keep abreast of every single um, new release coming out, you need to be armed with about four or five um, subscriptions, which is just not like, that's not sustainable. <laughs> it uh, reminds me of the early days of cable when they were just charging people for too many channels and everyone got fed up. So they eventually started bundling them together, which was worse almost in its own way. Uh, I guess I can't really predict uh, or extrapolate where, where this one is headed, but it does not, I agree with you that it's not, doesn't feel tenable in the long term. My question for you though, Charles. So last time you were on the podcast, we spoke about this mega list you have of every Netflix original. Um, are you going to spin out into Apple TV Plus originals and Prime originals? <laughs> I am but a single human man, and I, I am made of but flesh and bone, and I have my limits. That is my response to that. <laughs> the Netflix, they've, they've kept me plenty busy. I am on the hook, I think, oh God, maybe later today, to see... The Prom, starring your countryman, James Corden. I think you can have him. Yeah, he's not our problem now. <laughs> he's you one got, of ours now. You got he's James, one of ours you now. You got John Oliver, and with that, you had to also take James Corden. That's how it works. It's a package deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's only fair. I can't argue with that. Uh, Charles, what's your next pick of the year? The other one I was eager to talk about today is a film called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets by Bill and Turner Ross, a pair of brothers who have been making uh, very small but very clever films out of Louisiana for over a decade now, I think. Uh, this is their fourth or fifth uh, film, fifth, sixth, uh, but it is, I believe, their most ambitious. Uh, it is a project that sort of bridges the gap between narrative fiction cinema and documentary. Uh, the long and short of it, which is it's somewhat complicated, they filled a bar in New Orleans, which is standing in for a bar in Las Vegas, on its last night, which was not actually its last night, with actors who they sort of observed around bars in uh, the New Orleans area, and then they sort of turned them loose in this bar for the better part of a day and night and let them drink and talk and react to one another. And through these sort of creatively contrived circumstances, you get a higher, purer truth. Uh, we see these really transcendent moments of connection and beauty between the people at this bar happening through the mediating gaze of alcohol, uh, mediating haze of alcohol, excuse me. And it's, uh, it is, for one, the best bar film ever made, really captures the agonies and ecstasies of spending like four and a half hours just getting absolutely ripped in a dive bar. Uh, incredible uh, musical lineup, the soundtrack, which comes from this jukebox that the actors, quote unquote actors, commandeered over the course of the day, just goes through so many amazing songs that their legal department somehow got around paying for. You hear... You know, Rihanna, you hear classic, I think, um, uh, songs from the Commodores, just all this old stuff that they got around paying for because it was like something about documentary law and it having happened organically in the course of letting these events play out. Very clever stuff. Um, but it's it's a really moving, fun, mournful movie. Uh, and, and these characters that they found to fill this bar are just incredible people, really funny really insightful, really, uh, really humane people. 
I, I really loved that film. And I yeah. wonder whether it's a film that could almost qualify for a spoiler alert. Because the film doesn't upfront tell you what it's doing right. craft-wise. It lets you believe that it is the simplest version of itself. And then I guess it's uh, on you. Sorry about that. I, I This was the premise that I knew going in. And so I guess this colored my impression of it. But I think, yeah, I mean, it goes from a great film to a really ingenious film once you have that context. And actually... When I watched it, it was at the London Film Festival. I knew a little bit about, I think I, because it premiered at festivals at the beginning of the year and had this moment when it was you know, around then. By the time it came around to October and I saw it, I'd sort of half remembered, half forgotten what the whole deal was with it and had a great time with it. And actually, it's your piece, Charles, in The Guardian, that is almost a great visual key, yeah. you know, a, a feature that can really unpick what they're doing and what's going into it. It's really useful to have that online. And it's coming out on the 24th of December here in the UK, like a Christmas Eve is that right? Oh my God, that is actually a perfect time for that. The Really, the bar is lit all by Christmas lights, and so I do think it is an unlikely but apt choice for Christmas Eve. I'm really hoping that maybe families watch it together because it's also a great conversation starter of a movie about what's documentary what's yeah um, i think it's you know, reality kids and, at home yeah. yeah uh it was a lot of fun interviewing the ross guys i've spoken to them before and uh they live in a part of new orleans not so far from where i was i spent uh four years there for university and the bar culture uh is richer there than i think in any city in the united states i was talking to them about my go-to like really awful dive bar where you could get shot in a beer for three dollars you could get uh, a can of what is called schlitz beer which is the wateriest swill in the united states for only two and uh the, the best part of this bar which is called snake and jake's is that if you are shot in the bar or on the sidewalk outside of it you get to drink free for life <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> it's a great place Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So that's Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which um, I guess many of us aren't enjoying going out drinking you know, at the end of the year as we usually would. So maybe a good replacement it's for a that. It's sad for that. Definitely. <laughs> I suppose that, that actually 
transitions quite well into my second pick, which is another documentary that plays with reality and fiction, which is Dick Johnson is Dead, which came out on Netflix um, in October, early October, I believe, but had been at Sundance before that. And this is Kirsten Johnson, who um, released a film a few years ago called Camera Person. She's a long-term cinematographer for documentaries. I reviewed Camera Person for Little White Lies way back when, and that was a sort of montage of stuff she'd shot for other projects, but for herself, home videos of her mother. And now that she's made this film, Dick Johnson's Dead, about her father, and it's the conceit behind it is that they know that he has dementia, um, that that this is the beginning of the end of his life and it's taking an active role within the documentation of that because she wants to, with his participation, stage all sorts of deaths for him, You know, some, some of which are realistic, some of which are fanciful and imaginative and funny, slapstick, some of them, as a way of processing this grief that is a given at this point in the near future. But then in the film itself, it's so playful and messes with you. And then through the collision of real footage and staged footage and the lines between the two blurring, um, I get at deeper ruminations on life and death and grief and what we look to movies. And it's a, I'm a huge fan of Hirokazu Koreeda. I've talked about him a lot on this podcast. And one of his films, Afterlife, it is set in this purgatory where a bunch of uh, characters are told they're dead and they're allowed to restage one memory from their lives to take with them into the afterlife this is playing on very similar vibes about how you want to remember your loved ones when they're alive how you commemorate them when they're gone and it's really wonderful and also Kirsten Johnson is living uh, a a, a life that I I would love (laughs) with her kids in her in her apartment with co-parenting with Ira Sachs around the corner, another New York filmmaker. Uh, just absolutely wonderful. Have you, see, have you two seen this film? Yes, yeah, love that film. Kirsten Johnson is a really, really brilliant woman. I uh, also interviewed her uh, at one point this year, and she speaks about her own work, which is, I think, a difficult thing to do often as an artist, but she speaks about her own work with such clarity and honesty, and um, she's... You can tell that she's a professor very quickly after speaking with her for only a short amount of time because she uh, speaks with, you know, such these these long sentences that are so dense with ideas. Uh, She's great. I remember the last paragraph of your interview with her, um, Charles, in The Guardian was really, really beautiful. It was it was um, there's something she says to you. Um, the, I, I'm not going to spoil She'd it. Said, uh... oh, go on, you spoil it for them. Oh for yeah, the okay, yeah, no, I'll like, let them read I it. Like, go and go and give Charles's piece a read, and you know, get, get the get the clicks. Yes, um... no, I need, I need the precious <laughs> clicks. <laughs> I, I, I should say as well that Adam Woodward interviewed her for Little White Lies, so we have an interview as well um, with a, a really wonderful illustration, I must say. Um, but yeah, this is another one that made me cry at Sundance. Maybe this podcast should have just been films that made Hannah cry at Sundance. I feel like that would have been a perfect title I for mean, it as well. I mean, it's tricky. That was the one taste, really, of the film festival experience that you got this year, which is just such an intense way to see movies. I feel like I'm much more susceptible to what they do when, you know, you're running on low sleep, totally, you know, run down during a festival. And that's been robbed of us by the coronavirus. I suppose my question now, Hannah, is... Uh... Did your second pick make you cry? And was it at Sundance? <laughs> I think it did. It did, but it wasn't at Sundance. It was um, it 
it, it would have been at uh, Toronto Film Festival if there had been... Well, it was at Toronto Film Festival, technically. But um, I was not at Toronto Film Festival. I was sat in a, uh, a very empty um, screening room in London at the beginning of September, which, of course, was a novelty in itself because for so long we hadn't been able to go to the cinema. So this was my the first thing I saw back in a screening room after the pandemic. So, like, the first film in six months that I'd been able to actually watch on the big screen. Um, and it is Nomadland by Chloe Zhao, which comes out in UK cinemas in, I want to say, February. It's where, where to start with this film? So for people that kind of don't know Chloe Zhao, she's a um, Chinese-American filmmaker who um, has produced two films before Nomadland. So her first was called um, Songs My Brothers Taught Me and her second was called The Rider. And that was kind of her breakout. It was really, um, did really, really well on the festival circuit. I think it, it debuted in director's fortnight and there were a lot of kind of calls for her to get um, Oscar nominations, which didn't happen, but it really kind of put her on the map. And she was tapped, I think the same year to direct a Marvel movie which is coming out next year now, I think. It was meant to come out this year. But between doing pre-production on the Marvel movie, uh, she also managed to shoot this film with Frances McDormand, who she met at the Screen Actors Guild Awards when she was campaigning for the rider and Frances was kind of doing that whole three billboards uh, sweep that was going on. So um, they met and I think within about two days or something, they said they decided they wanted to make a movie together. And so they went away and did that, which, you know, um, in the kind of like age we live in with all the red tape, I think it, you know, it really is wonderful when filmmakers are able to go away and just say, yeah, I want to do this and do it. And I think Koi Zhao is someone who has worked in indie movies for quite a while and still very much maintains that spirit. So anyway, all this to say that <laughs> Nomadland is um, a film about a uh, widow who... <sighs> What's the best way to word this? She lives in a van and travels across the United States looking for work. Um, that's a massive kind of oversimplification. It's based on a book by Jessica, Jessica Bruder about the kind of phenomenon in the United States of older Americans um, either choosing to or being kind of forced into living in RVs and vans and having to take a lot of seasonal work. Um, it's a really great book. Again, I'd highly recommend it. And yeah, this film charts, I think, a year in her life and all the kind of people she meets along the way. I think most of them, if not all of them, well, not David Stratham, <laughs> most of the people she that, uh, that co-star are um, real life nomads. They actually do live this life of kind of going from state to state, looking for work and living out of their uh, cars and vans. And it's just a real kind of slice of life um road movie that I, I i felt like i hadn't really seen anything like it since the kind of early days of uh terence malick i think it's a really beautifully beautifully shot i mean it looks amazing but a beautifully told story that is it's quite simple but the more you kind of think about it the more 
the deeper it goes. I, I think that the kind of, there've been a lot of, <laughs> there's been a lot of discourse around this film and kind of um, the way it, the, the politics in it and whether or not it's political enough and whether or not um, it is um, positive about Amazon and kind of if it should be, you know, more kind of critical of this way of life that um, a lot of Americans have been forced into. But for me, it's it's a really difficult one to pass because I think it the film is, it's political but not didactic, which is kind of, I think... The best, the best kind of film. <laughs> um, I think there's there's a lot of like really fascinating conversations that you could have about the um, the things we see in the film and the kind of the broader themes um, without Kai Zhao herself kind of you know telling you exactly what to think. I, I mean, I I am hopeful that there'll be a lot more kind of interviews with her about this coming out um, because I I would love to. I mean, I would love to speak to her, but I would love to hear kind of her, um, the motivations behind making this film and kind of her take on like the nomad lifestyle and Amazon's role in that, in all of this, because they do play quite a significant role in the film. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those ones that I haven't been able to shake. I've seen it twice now and I'm probably going to see it again if we get fingers crossed, if, uh, we get to go back to the cinema in January, um, but yeah, I just I I I am slightly rambling now. I, I I really do. It's one of my favorite things I've seen. One of the wild things about that movie is uh, she got permission to shoot in the Amazon shipping warehouses and the gigantic processing facilities. We see these uh, crazy scenes that look like giant mechanized Tati tableaus of people sorting and packaging boxes, which I've never seen in a movie before. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I read that Frances McDormand kind of basically went to Amazon and said, hey, we want to shoot a movie in your warehouse. And they were like, okay, um, you know. How do you say no to Frances McDormand? Exactly. And this is one of the things, like, you know, I think there's always a worry when independent filmmakers kind of um, go from, make that leap from independent filmmaking to kind of studio filmmaking. And this this is technically an independent film, but it is it's going to be distributed by um, uh, 20th Century Studios weird to say uh even now and um it's you know it doesn't it doesn't really feel like an independent movie to me um but with that kind of with your filmmaker getting this bigger budget there's always that concern of like you know will they be able to retain their um vision whilst also kind of balancing all the kind of uh red tape that comes with being given a lot of money to make a film but it also helps if you have someone like Francis McDormand who can kind of go to a big corporation and say hey can we make a movie here which you know I'm sure wouldn't have not happened if she was just making it kind of with um a cast of unknowns like her other two movies well as you right. say how, how can you say no to Francis McDormand and that is the <laughs> one of the main reasons to go through the door to see this film you know Frances McDormand having always been a well-regarded act- actress and you know cult figure from Olive Kittredge for HBO and onwards she she just knocks it out of the park every time and this is a film where she is in every shot she is completely carrying this film and it almost works as a hangout movie with Frances McDormand and isn't that sort oh, yeah. of what everyone wants to start the year with <laughs> she has the most incredible eyes she has these uh, eyes that are so expressive like you know you you feel like she's seen uh, centuries worth of stuff. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. 
I mean, that is in you know due to the way that calendars work the best film of 2020 and potentially the first great <laughs> film of 2021 for us in the uk so actually Hannah, you've given us a preview of what to expect and uh, enjoy next year see it's i i i it i i just wanted to say that, like it's it's been very difficult for us to choose our best films of 2020 at the while eyes uh, because there are so many great films which have been pushed back to um, 2021. Uh, one of my favourite films of 2019, in fact, um, was um, uh, Sound of Metal. And that is a film that we're not going to get to see until, I think, January in the UK, despite the fact I saw it at Toronto in September of 2019. It, it's, you know, it, it's been a difficult one to kind of know what what's coming out when, and what you should put on your list, what actually counts as... Um, a 20, uh, 20 movie and even you know the year feels like it's been twice the length of a normal year when we were kind of putting it together I was putting things like Baccarat and Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire on my list and thinking like these movies do not feel like 2020 movies to me I feel like they're very much 2019 ones um, but yeah that's just one of the the, the joys of being a, a UK publication which also kind of deals with international film festivals I guess and and your friends at Netflix, Charles, have uh, have helped that in no in no small measure by doing these kind of instant global releases. If we didn't have those, we wouldn't be able to cluster around the likes of Mank, etc. They've they've positioned themselves on top by being able to release what are still pretty big ticket movies. I can't think of anything that they felt like they needed to hold. They still got Mank out there, and uh, they still got what the very expensive The Old Guard, I think, which uh, did quite well for them. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I had a working theory at one point, which I'm starting to loosen up on, that the coronavirus was sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, germinated by Netflix so that the <laughs> streaming platforms would really take off. You can see, like, this has been so unilater unilaterally positive for the Netflix business that, like, something has to be going on. That's the first time I've heard that theory, Charles. You know, I'll, I'll say the that. government is trying to silence my my ideas. <laughs> I can't get a platform for these, so I'm glad that you had me on uh, your podcast to air my most crackpot theories. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have to say, like, if if you know if that was the case, then um, it it doesn't account for the fact that the other streaming platforms have really not. Been, they fight a lot of them have really kind of dropped the ball during coronavirus. If if ever there was a time, Disney Plus, use, Disney well, Plus definitely. I think that Disney Plus is kind of, they've kind of like, they they were so indecisive over a lot of like what they were going to do during coronavirus. And I get that because, you know, in a pandemic, yeah. it's very hard to kind of know what's going on day to day. Um, and, you know, the whole thing with Mulan and then kind of deciding very last minute to just chuck it on Disney oh, yeah. Plus. And then with Seoul, um, a similar thing where they're kind, they're kind of, I think it is going to come out in cinemas for like a limited amount of time. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I find it, again, very hard to kind of understand the rules in different countries about what's going to happen. Um, but like an interesting kind of thing that I've been talking about with our fellow critics is the kind of movies that are getting put onto these platforms. And it's fascinating to me that there's been such a kind of fanfare made by studios like Disney and like uh, Warner Brothers about their uh, quote-unquote diversity now and how they're bringing more women and more people of colour into their uh, fold, whether it's as filmmakers or as actors. And then all these movies are immediately getting kind of 
put onto streaming services and there's nothing wrong with that but at the same time I do kind of think it seems a bit unfair that they don't get the kind of big fanfare and press tours and you know big screen showing that we've had for kind of decades for uh white male authors I you know I think that these filmmakers and actors will have grown up wanting to be in the cinema and wanting to kind of be on the big screen and it seems a shame that they aren't getting much of a say in that matter so I don't know it's it's a strange time to be working in film criticism. It's never, it's never not a strange time, but I think it's a particularly strange time, especially in light of the HBO Max and Warner Brothers news and in light of all the Disney announcements yesterday. It's a very kind of... Everything feels very unpredictable and very up in the air. And I'm not quite scared, but I am uneasy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's shared by... By many other people in the industry but netflix is there are so many factors in there i think there are films that netflix put on their platform that managed to divide define the zeitgeist and at least online for a couple of weeks that wouldn't have got that if they went to the theaters so something like uh rocks a film very well regarded played at festivals in 2019 um had the misfortune of having this uk release date be the literal week that cinemas closed i believe in the uk so then wow. ver- the people were thinking bfi had money in film for I mean, where is it going to end up what they're going to do they might actually have this international data bang it's on netflix then same with the film like his house which is one of my favorite films of the year the horror movie that went up on on netflix in october came out of sundance you know with some good reviews but if that went straight to the sort of b-level cinemas in a uk theatrical context that wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to grab as many eyeballs it's very complicated but netflix coming out of the year really strong i think with you know, they managed to have something daisy change, whether it would be genuine love or hate watching or or whatever. They've managed to really define the year. So maybe Charles, you are you do have a, a seed of something in there in that theory. I think um looking out over the coming year, uh I don't really see uh, that pattern changing in any way. I really think that the decisions that have been made, a lot of them driven by panic during this time are going to stick. And that uh, even when cinemas, uh, proper brick and mortar cinemas, start to get back on their feet, it will take a long time for uh, for things to get back to the good old days of ten months ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as there are movies, there will be people like us talking about them on the microphone right. or writing about them in print and online. So we'll be here, listeners, when there are films. Um, that's just a taste of our highlights from the year for more you can go over to elderlylies.com from the 21st of december for the big list and you can argue with us about what's in there and what isn't in there at the usual channels at lwlies on twitter send us an email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or head to the comment section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Of course, Little White Lies is also still on shelves where shelves are available, or you can order the magazine at lwlies.com. The Mank special issue is the current issue, and uh, maybe you've had a chance to watch that now. It's been on Netflix for a couple of weeks. If you want to go deeper into the film and the craft behind it and history behind it, you can go and grab that magazine. Hannah, can we get a little taste of the year-end list? How high is Hubie Halloween going to be up on, on this list? <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because I'm recording a podcast for our pals at Letterboxd and I was trying to think of 
they asked me uh, to talk about the bad films I'd seen this year and I'd completely forgotten about Hubie Halloween and I instantly felt very bad um, but it will have its moment in the sun via <laughs> my chat with Lurbox next week um, thank god <laughs> I actually quite like that movie I thought it was it, as far as Adam Sandler Netflix vehicles go it's pretty sweet um, pretty, a pretty I, I could not agree more <laughs> oh yeah I will say, look, with the with the list, we've we very much tried to kind of um, get a good balance of uh, stuff that you might have heard of and stuff that you might not have heard of. And there are a couple of things that are coming out in early 2021, but they very much felt like fab the fabric of 2020. So we've included them. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, mm. the logistics of doing these lists is always a nightmare, and ultimately they don't really matter. There's a new one every year, so I would say before anyone starts getting angry at us, it doesn't matter. Not nothing matters. It's very true. <laughs> I love getting the spreadsheet out and tracking <laughs> tracking the behaviour across all across all the lists. I love it. It's been fascinating, hasn't it? This year, like I I do think it in. For as terrible as it's been for the arts, it has been wonderful for lists. Like looking at the lists, there's kind of no consensus. Everyone is crazy. No one knows what's happening. Everyone is going for different things. It's it's been really fun to see. I can't wait to see the Oscars race as well. That's one thing that's still coming. Is is the uh, how the hell are they gonna decide what wins the Oscars again? Meaning, I'll tell you. Do not underestimate the Oscars' ability to be predictable and boring. They will find a way. <laughs> but. Is there a boring and predictable choice as of now? They'll probably go with the Aaron Sorkin courtroom movie. They'll be like, it was a stirring pain to liberalism. Well, we'll Charles will come and uh, knock on your door if you're right or wrong come <laughs> March. Please do. But let's enjoy the end of the year, winding down towards Christmas before we start talking about Oscars too soon. Although, as <laughs> film fans and critics, of course, we'll be talking about the Oscars all the time. Anyway. Charles and Hannah, thank you so much for talking with me today and sharing your picks from the year. I'm Akalida. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 